The readings from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in whom you also once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we were all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised it up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Tonight we're, uh, we're, we're considering grace, the gift of God, and we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, those verses 1 to 10. If you've got your Bibles open, uh, then please do keep them open as we, as we look at those verses. Our theme for the weekend is the great giveaway. And uh, you've already been told, really, that you've got these folders. And it won't be your cup running over. It'll be your folders running over by the end of the weekend with all these great things you're going to get. And you may have come just for the freebies that you're going to get this weekend. The free books, the free tracks, maybe, who knows, even a free UBM uniform so you can wear one all year round. How about that? And again, you may be slightly disappointed Because it's not just about what you get this weekend, it is also about what you give. Giving away your time, giving away your faith, giving away your money, giving away your life. At first I thought when there's a session on giving away your money, I thought I'm going to be at that session. I'll be at the end of the road saying, pass it this way, come on, pass it down. But it's it's about us giving. And we're also going to be considering the great giver, the one who gave more than anyone has ever given. But before we do any of that, we're going to think about the greatest gift that we have been given. Grace, the gift of God. I've got three simple points. Um, I don't know, good speakers apparently make complicated things simple. I manage to make simple things complicated. But here we go. It's simply this. Know it, live it, show it. And the three points work out like this. Understanding the grace of God. We need to understand the grace of God. Or do the best we can to understand the grace of God. Know it. We need to live it. Living in the grace of God. And then we need to show it. We need to live out the grace of God. You and me need to be living out the grace of God. And this great giveaway weekend that we've got this week where we're going to be considering time and faith and money and life and all this that we're giving away, it all has to start with what we have been given. And by God's grace, we have salvation through Jesus Christ. Grace, the gift of God. 
So let's start with understanding it. Know it. Understanding the grace of God. This really is the main point. I've only got three points. And if you're thinking, you know, in 25 minutes from now, if you're thinking he's still on point number one, he's going to be here forever, that's the main point. So there's a lot in, well, hopefully there's a lot in point, point number one. Understanding the grace of God. Apparently, a group of um, geography students were studying the seven wonders of the world. And as they were studying, they were asked by their tutor at the end of what all they'd studied, they were asked what they thought, what they thought were the seven wonders of the world. And this is the answer that they gave. It took them a while, they argued and toed and froed, but these are the answers they gave. They said, the, uh, the Great Pyramids in Egypt, the Taj Mahal, the Grand Canyon, the Panama Canal, the Empire State Building, St. Peter's Basilica and the Great Wall of China. That's what they decided were the seven wonders of the world. The tutor noticed there was one particular girl in the class, very quiet, very shy, and she hadn't handed in any answers. He didn't want to put her on the spot, but he was very interested to know what she'd chosen. So he did put her on the spot. In front of the class, he said, what did you choose as the seven wonders of the world? You didn't hand in any answer. And the girl said, well... I couldn't really make up my mind. And he said, well, what did you choose? And the girl said this, I think the seven wonders of the world are this, to touch, to taste, to see, to hear. She hesitated for a moment, and then she said, to run, to laugh, to love. It is far too easy to consider the exploits of man as wonders, and look at them in awe. And then, really, just give no attention at all to all that God has done. God's grace is far too often overlooked. It is neglected. It is forgotten about. And it's misunderstood. But we need to understand the grace of God before we're ever in a position to give anything to anyone else. To understand the grace of God, that's what we need. The thing is this. Before we can understand the grace of God... Before we can understand the grace of God, we need to understand, and you probably didn't want to come all this way to hear this, but we need to understand the sinfulness of sin. I know sin's an old-fashioned word that only Christians use nowadays, but we all know exactly what it means. Before you can really appreciate or understand the grace of God, you need to understand the sinfulness of sin. We must understand how bad things are for us without grace without the grace of God. We must understand how much damage sin does to us when we are without the grace of God. Before we can ever understand the grace of God, we must first understand what a mess we would be in without it. So I want us to look at verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. And I want us to see the picture that is painted so clearly there for us about the situation that we are in if we are outside or if we are without the grace of God. This is what it says in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. Not sick, not ill, not weak, not incapacitated, but dead. That was your position before God in his grace found you. You were dead. If you went to the doctors in this spiritual condition, he would not give you a tablet, he would not stick a plaster on, he would not send you off to the hospital, he would wheel you to the mortuary on a trolley and they would would carry out an autopsy. You are dead. You are dead. 
We say, we say, I'm sure you say this as well, but I, it's a phrase I know. People say things, well, where there's life, there's hope. Where there's life, there's hope. Well, in this situation, you are dead, so there is no hope. You are dead and there is no hope outside the, the, the grace of God. That means that I am, that means that you are outside the grace of God. We are spiritually stinking, rotting corpses. <laughs> Aren't you really glad the speaker at the front has just told you that? But it's true. And it says we're dead on two accounts. One, we're dead in our transgressions and our sins. In other words, we have broken the rules technically. Transgressions. And by sins, it means that we have missed the mark morally. So technically and morally, we are dead. Now you're thinking, hopefully that's the end of the bad news. Well, it's not because it gets worse. It goes on to tell us that we are trapped in verses 2 and 3, it talks about us following the course of this world. It, depending on which version you use, it might say according to the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Following the devil. And then it goes on, following the desires of the body and the minds. We are trapped into following the, the course of this world. We're trapped into following the desires and course of the devil. We're trapped into following our own sinful flesh desires. The course, the direction of your life was set. You were in in free within the boundaries of your cage, but you were still trapped and set. Years ago, when I was a Sunday school teacher, um, I had the job of taking a little bunch of thug kids round uh, Wigstead Park. And uh, you, as a Sunday school teacher, you you come back in the stickiest, most horrible mess. They buy dummies, these sugar dummies. They buy these uh, these candy floss. And then they go off and they all pull their their money together and they buy tickets for the various rides. Now, if you've never been to Wigsteed Park, it's like an economy version of Alton Towers. Uh, You know, like if, if, if... if British Airways was Alton Towers, Ryanair would be Wigsteed Park. Right? And at Wigsteed Park, there's all the rides that Alton Towers haven't got. Maybe for safety reasons, I don't know. But they're all there at Wigsteed Park. And the eight and nine-year-olds that I was taking around were going from place to place. I had one little stinker at one year called Trevor. I never, ever managed to get Trevor home without him being in a disgusting mess afterwards. One year, I thought I got him home clean which is one aim as a Sunday school teacher, just keep them clean. And uh, he reached out on the counter and grabbed, he asked me what it was, what's this? And he grabbed the dispenser for the ketchup and pulled it down. And it shot ketchup all down his... And then I get this uh, eight serviettes and I'm just rubbing it all in and he just glazed in ketchup. But that wasn't this particular year. This particular year I was taking around a bunch of eight and nine-year-olds. But with them I got Nicholas, the younger brother of Jamie. Jamie was one of the eight and nine-year-olds. Nicholas was the youngest. As they went from ride to ride, they had these boards that said, you know, if you're this big, you've got to be this big, as it were, to go on the ride. Nicholas would run up to this board and throw him and get himself against the board and push himself up, but still would not be high enough. And all the other eight and nine-year-olds could go on the rides, and eventually they'd spent all their tickets, and he had something like 40 still to use. Eventually, at Wigsteed Park, we went to these little cars that go round on this concrete track. It's a bit like a glorified scale electrics. Concrete track, metal rail, and the cars go on. Two tickets. Forty tickets was going to take ages to use. Two tickets. Got little, um, little Nicholas to use. He got on this car. 
he sat down there and he drove. And there I am standing at one side holding all these grubby bits that he's half a hot dog, you know, and, and a, a sugar dummy and all of it. I'm standing there holding it and watching. And as I watch Nicholas, it becomes apparent that he really thinks he's in control. Every time he turns a corner, you can see the concentration on his face. There he is carefully turning the wheel and carefully straightening back up. What he doesn't realise is, for instance, the child behind is just spinning the wheel round. What he doesn't realise is the track is concrete and it's set on a metal rail. He is just going to run the course of that track. It doesn't matter where he turns the wheel. He is just going to go in exactly the same direction. That is how it is outside of the grace of God. We just follow the course of this world. We just follow the prince of the power of the air, the devil. We just follow the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We're just trapped into a routine. That is what it's like outside of the grace of God. We are dead with no hope. We are trapped with no escape. And it gets worse. We're condemned with no defence. You think the picture could not get bleaker, but it does. We're condemned with no defence. Verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. We were by nature... Children of wrath. Another version of the Bible puts it this way. We were by nature under God's anger. God was furious with us. A condemned man is just waiting for the sentence to be carried out. Just sitting there, waiting. With no defence, we're condemned. I was caught for speeding the other day. Um, I've only ever twice been caught for speeding. I was doing 42 in a 30. The first time I was caught for speeding, I was actually on my way to church. It was very nice, because two families drove by and waved to me as they went. <laughs> Fantastic. This particular time, I was in my wife's car. I didn't realise they could get you if you were in your wife's car, but they can. I was doing 37 in a 30. As I went down the hill, I saw the man, I saw the camera. He even smiled. I was thinking of waving back a bit like this but I didn't 37 in a 30 I didn't think that was particularly fair but then I knew that, and I said to my Elspeth, my wife I said I'm going to get a ticket I know I am and then there was a horrible period of waiting and then there was a time when the ticket came and it came in Elspeth's name because I was driving her car and she fills it in and sends it off blaming me I thought we got married so that we did everything together anyway but there was that horrible sense that you knew you were in trouble and it's going to be three points and 60 pounds. And really, I had no defence. I was doing 37. I think it might have been doing a bit. Anyway, we must understand the mess that we are in. And only then, when we understand the mess we are in, we can we really value the gift that we have in the shape of the grace that God gives. But God changes our situation from being dead trapped and condemned to being alive, rescued and glorified. God, who is rich in mercy, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. 1 to 3 is a gloomy picture. And then in verse 4, it all turns around. I know some people, perhaps if you've got the New King James Version of the Bible, in the first verse it talks about, he made you alive. But in the, apparently in the original Greek, it's all doom and gloom in verses 1 to 3. And it's only when you get to verse 4 that the picture starts to pick up. Verses 4 and 5. 
And it starts like this, but God, but God. There's some lovely occasions in the Bible that start, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, made us alive. We were dead. By his grace, his love and his mercy, he made you alive. But more than that, he rescued us. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved rescued. And that's through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift, the gift of God. Alive, rescued, and then pardoned? No, better than pardoned. Glorified. And it talks about in verse 6, being raised up together to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That is what God has done for you. You were dead, you were trapped, you were condemned. There was no life, there was no hope, there was no escape, there was no defence. And that was all turned round. God made you alive. He rescued you. He glorified you. Do we deserve this? No. Could we earn this? No. Will we ever be able to pay for this? No. So why does God do this? Why does God do this? Why does he bother with us? Why? Because he is rich in mercy and great in love. We need to understand this. Some time ago I bought my mum an all singing, all dancing blender. Did everything. Chopped stuff. It did stuff. It blended stuff. It pulverised stuff. It massacred just about anything. I think it even could do a perm. All sorts of things it could do. And then one time I went round to see my mum and I asked her, this was quite some time later, how do you get on with the blender? And she showed it to me, and it was still kind of in the box, and it was all kind of left there. And I said, well, don't you use it? And she said, oh, Mart, it's, well, it's just so complicated. I don't really understand it. Never got used because it was never understood. She then gave it to me. I understood how to use it. I could blend and shape and all the rest of it. I just didn't know what to do. I mean, I didn't know how to, I mean, what, if you blended something, what do you do with it? I don't know, you put it with something else. I didn't know what you did. Anyway, so between us, we've never used it. So if you want a blender, come to me afterwards. Well, I didn't understand. We need to understand that God is rich in mercy and he's great in love. We deserved fire, but we go to heaven. We need to understand the grace that he has. When I was a kid, I thought the power of God was amazing. It was so impressed me. The stories when God brings fire down from heaven, the story about the little guy who fights the big bloke and wins, all those stories, fantastic. And it used to be the power of God that impressed me. But now as I've grown older, it's not the power of God so much that impresses me, although still, it is so impressive. But it is the character of God that impresses me. The fact that he is rich in mercy, that he is great in love, And there is no point in time when we deserve that. But still he gives it to us. Understand the grace of God as best we can. Secondly, second point, living in the grace of God. Grace-focused living. Seeing the value and the importance of grace. Grace is something that is unique to the Christian faith. During a conference on comparative religions, apparently a whole bunch of experts were debating what, if anything, was unique to the Christian faith. 
They talked about the incarnation. They said, well, no, there are some tales in other religions about incarnation. They talked about the resurrection. And they said, no, there's tales in other religions about resurrection as, as, as well. Yes, so they're not things that make the Christian faith unique. And apparently while this debate was going on, C.S. Lewis entered the room. And he asked, what are you discussing? And they said, we're discussing what, if anything, was unique to the Christian faith. And immediately he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace. The notion that God's love comes to us free of charge, as a gift, no strings attached, that seems to go against every human instinct. The Buddhists have their eightfold path. The Hindus have karma, where you work your way up. The Jewish faith has the covenant and keeping the law. The Muslims have a code of law. All of it works your way up. Maybe if you're bad, or sorry, if you're good, it outweighs your bads, then you're all right. Grace is unique to the Christian faith. Never lose sight of what God has given us. Never allow it to become ordinary or mediocre. Never let it become too familiar. Instead, make sure that grace, the grace of God, shapes and moulds every part of your daily life. Let me ask you a question. What do you think is the biggest enemy to grace? What do you think is the biggest enemy to grace? I think the biggest enemy to grace is legalism. Legalism. The law, the law never saves anyone. It just points out the faults. It is by grace that we have been saved, and that's the gift of God. Never exchange God's grace, God-given grace, for guilt-induced legalism. Never exchange God-given grace for guilt-induced legalism. Sometimes I think as Christians we can do exactly that. We need to keep going back to the grace of God. We need to keep thinking and pondering and considering this great gift that we have that is the very centre of the faith that we have in God. Final point. Apparently when you say finally in a talk about a third of the congregation wake up, did you know that? So if I say finally, 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 you should all be awake. Finally, living out the grace of God. Living out the grace of God. There is something wrong. If you know the grace of God, if you've experienced it in your life, and it doesn't affect or change the way you live. Put your hand up if you like Marmite. Hands down. It's a love-hate thing, isn't it? But apparently, if you eat Marmite, it comes out the pores of your skin. Did you know that? You know, it does. So you're not just eating it, you're wearing it. How about that? It comes out the pores of your skin. And apparently, because it comes out the pores of your skin, if you eat Marmite, you're less likely to get bitten by mosquitoes and insects. How about that? There, you learned something today. How about that? Garlic, Marmite, and quite a few other foods actually come out the pores of your skin. They go in, and they come out. And that's exactly what grace should do. It's poured into our lives. It's the gift of God. It should influence every fibre of our being. It should influence the way we see life, the things that we do, how we act towards people. We should have a mercy and grace mentality. Especially in a world that has very little grace. Very little grace. Let me read you a poem that I think sums up today's modern world that we live in. The poem said these words. 
We have taller buildings but shorter tempers. We have wider motorways but narrower viewpoints. We spend more but have less. We buy more but enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families. We have more conveniences but less time. We have more degrees but less common sense. We have more knowledge but less judgment. We have more medicine but less well-being. We have multiplied our possessions while reducing our values. We talk too little and lie too often. We've learned to make a living, but not how to live our lives. We've added years to our lives, but not life to our years. We plan more and accomplish less. We have higher incomes and lower morals. We have more acquaintances and fewer friends. These are the times of fast food and slow digestion, of tall men and short characters. It is a time when there is much in the shop window and nothing in the stockroom. Doesn't that sum up the world today? What does the world need? The world needs the grace of God. We cannot work our way, we cannot earn our way. It has been said that the world at its worst needs the church at its best. And the more the church demonstrates, understands, knows, lives grace, the better the church is. Grace is central as well, not just to the church, but it was central to the character of Jesus. When John wanted to describe Jesus, John, one of Jesus' disciples, wanted to describe Jesus. You know how he described him? At the beginning of John's Gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 14, he said this, The Word, the Word of God became flesh, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from God. And then he, this is how he describes him. John, the man who probably knew Jesus better than anyone else, he says this, full of grace and truth. That's how he describes Jesus. He goes on in verse 18 and says, The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What a combination, grace and truth. I used to live with a fellow called Simon Brown. You ever been on beach missions with Simon Brown? Hopefully, if you've been on beach missions with him, he didn't cook. We were never particularly very good cooks. But Simon used to put together the strangest combinations. You know, you'd come down for dinner and there'd be one fish finger, a slice of ham, some scrambled egg, a slice of toast, some mashed potato and some super noodles. And they were the combinations he put together. Very strange combinations. Don't you think it's a strange combination? Grace and truth. I think it is. I think you meet a lot of people that are very graceful or, or, or would seem full of grace, but they kind of let truth slip a bit. Being so full of grace, they've let the truth just ebb away. Don't want to really, you know, don't want to really go straight on with the truth at all, you know. Let's... And then there's other people who you know, and they know you know, and you know you know they know, and, and so on. They have the truth. They're as sound as the pound, but they're kind of harsh with it. They know the truth, but they don't have the grace. Now, we can never be a perfect combination, but the Lord Jesus Christ was. He was full of grace and full of truth. And it had an interesting impact. Is that me? Did I do that? (laughs) Anyway, it had an interesting impact on the world around him. Because it almost seems the more ungodly, the more unrighteous, the more undesirable a person was, the more they seemed to be drawn to Jesus Christ. 
And the more righteous and the more together and the more desirable a person was, the more they were threatened by Jesus. Why was this? The man who was full of grace and truth. Why was that? I think it was this. Jesus had mastered the ability of loving people whose behaviour he disapproved of. Jesus did not drop his standards for one second. He never compromised in any way, shape or form. He was full of grace and truth. He preached a strong message of repentance or else you are dead in trespasses and sins as we've already learned. He preached a strong, straightforward message but he had mastered the ability of loving people whose behaviour he disapproved of. What about us? I think some things we've done it the other way around. We've mastered the ability of disapproving of people that maybe we should be loving. I don't know. I certainly know I don't get it right. What about us? Jesus was known for his grace and his truth. What about us? Shouldn't we be the church that represents Jesus Christ in grace and truth as he was grace and truth? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, we are his workmanship. Another version puts it this way, we are his masterpiece. Hopefully after feeling bad about being dead, trapped and condemned, you can feel pretty good about the fact that you are God's workmanship. You are his masterpiece. He made you for good works, planned in advance, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. So let's finish, let's sum up. Let's always keep in mind the gift of God. We were dead, we were trapped and we condemned, but now we can be alive, rescued, glorified. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ through his death, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we are indeed alive, rescued and glorified, to be glorified. Never lose sight of the wonder of what God gave us in the shape of his grace. When he loved us, when we had no value, when he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die in our place, when we were still his enemies. Never lose sight of that. Never allow that to become ordinary or over-familiar. And then finally, live it out. Nothing matches up to the grace of God. Nothing comes close to the grace of God. We need to live it out. It's the thing that is so unique about the Christian faith. We don't deserve it, but still he gives us his grace. Three simple points. Know it, live it, show it.